As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. This is special insert episode number 129. We're going to talk about work that I have participated in. Specifically with the band New People that I was in between 2006 and 2013, I'm talking to Matt Ackerman, who was my co-frontman in that band, and we're talking specifically about things that we collaborated to a greater or lesser extent on. So I kind of wanted to make this one less about the music, more about that process of collaboration, the experience of being in a band together, dealing interpersonally and creatively with another songwriter. Despite the fact that we mostly didn't write songs together, there were things in the Matt column and things in the Mark column, but definitely if you're familiar with my solo work, you'll see that my three albums with new people are really much more professional sounding. It was good to have someone around vetoing my bad ideas, and since we each cared about different elements sonically, putting us together made us, I think, bigger than the sum of our parts. You're right now listening to one of my songs, Love is the Problem, from our first album, The Easy Thing, released in 2008. We're going to be talking about one of Matt's songs from there, Down So Low, that I helped him out with. Then Manager from our second album, Impossible Things 2011, which is a song I brought in fully written but which got transformed via the arrangement. Then from our third album, 2013's Might Get It Right, we'll talk about the song Local that we completely co-wrote. And we'll wrap up by listening to, at the time, one of Matt's songs from that album. And also, We Who Have Escaped, the last thing that we recorded together, eventually released on my solo album, Mark Lint's Songs from the Partially Examined Life, 2015. You can hear all these albums at marklint.bandcamp.com, read more about the band at newpeopleband.com, get more of this podcast at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, or support our efforts at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. So I will have played a little bit of Love is the Problem to introduce things, but we're going to get quickly to down So Low, also from The Easy Thing 2008. Before we squeeze into this, see if you remember it the same way that I do, how this group even happened. I had finished with my band Madison Lint that I was fronting and wasn't doing music for you know maybe a couple sessions or auditions here and there for at least a year. And then in the course of that had asked you like, oh, I see your other band that you're playing in needs a bass player. And you're like, oh, you're not going to want to do that. But I do have these songs and so I offered to just play bass for your songs and you invited me, I think. No, oh, we'll do your songs too. Am I missing something? No, that sounds right. I was really new to trying to sing and I was new to completely writing songs. The bands I'd been in before, 
I often wrote the music or took the music from jams, you know, that we'd had and pulled out the parts and kind of arranged them. And then I would usually write cursory lyrics, but usually the singer I was working with would not want to sing my lyrics. And so they would finish it. So this was really the first project where I thought, I really want to just try and write songs from start to finish. But I'm new to it and it would be good to have another songwriter. I've always liked bands with more than one songwriter. Obviously the Beatles and Fleetwood Mac. And so it just seemed like a good idea. And then if you look at the albums, it's pretty 50-50. It means I didn't have to write everything. I didn't have to sing everything. And then same for you. Though you did end up kind of one of the themes here as far as the actual recording process, because you were doing guitar and you were doing the guitar textures. I would play bass once and I'd probably do it while you were there. In the third album, I did some of it from home. But for the most part, it was we would engineer the drummer together or maybe I wasn't always there. But for the most part, that was a group activity. And then putting the bass parts down, putting the vocals down. For the most part, both of us were there. Although I forget as things proceeded, maybe I let you do more of your leads without me being around because they took so goddamn long. But then guitars, you would like the one time when we, so when we did the two songs, Love is the Problem and the second one, the last one in the studio, and I had to actually sit there while you were doing all the guitar parts. It took for freaking ever. It, we like, we took longer on those guitar parts than we did on the whole rest of the song. So it's just so much of the, the effort of putting these albums went into you, even though it was like officially 50 50. I think your guitar and its many layers established what the sound was pretty thoroughly. It was a learning process for me, not having done a lot of recording. How many instruments go into a, a modern pop or rock song in that rhythm range and that? Your intro has to pop out and your leads and your outros have to pop out. And if you want to boost the chorus, make it sound fuller, more texture. And I did really enjoy doing it, but, you know, we were both working stiffs. So it would be, you know, after I had worked a nine hour day and then had dinner with my wife and, you know, gotten the dishes, I would take a song that we had performed as a three piece and lay down my how I usually played it. And it sounded so empty compared to recordings, studio recordings, that I'd go, oh, I need another part. And I would write it and add that. And then I'd go, well, okay, now there needs to be an intro. And so I would add that. And, oh, I think the, the chorus should be beefed up. It was this process of coming up with things, getting my fingers to be able to do it. So that would sound really cool. And then I'd figure it out. And then I'd spend a half an hour making my fingers do it, and then actual recording it, getting the mic in the right spot and getting the amp right. I really love doing it, but I would just do that until 2 a.m. And then, you know, have to get up and go to work the next day. So that's why towards the end of the band, I was really gung-ho on getting some other instruments in there. Uh-huh. We'll get to that. Let's, let's get down so low out there. Do you have any brief words about, you know, thematically what this is before folks hear it? Was this the very first one we worked on together, Mark? I think thanks for stopping by and this one and the last one were the ones that maybe were templates, songs that you had mostly written. And I think if I remember correctly, you were explicit, like I'm kind of new to songwriting. I'm just going to try. What if I make a song that sounds as much as possible like Nirvana? What if I make another song that sounds as much as possible like Coldplay? I think this was the Coldplay one. That's right. And maybe melodically it is, but certainly when I added the rock guitar, it didn't sound much like Coldplay. And certainly I don't have the kind of crooning voice that he does. So it ended up maybe not sounding like what inspired it. 
which is good. I mean, that's, it just, it gave us a template to start with. And that's your choice of those influences and that sound then determined like most of the songs that I added to the first album, a few were written freshly, like Love is a Problem, but a lot of them were things that I had previously, but that sounded close enough or could be arranged in a way that like would more or less fit with what you'd set up. We got a lot of reviews that said we were power pop, which I didn't like. I like rock and rock guitar, and I like melodic music. So to me, we were always melodic rock, not power pop. So that's kind of how that came out. The other thing I remember is that you helped me with the uh, lyrics. You're much more of a word nerd than I am. And I know for you, lyrics are so much more primary than they are for me. Not that I don't appreciate great lyrics and love some music specifically because of the lyrics, but I think a big difference for us is there's a lot of music that I listen to with vocals where I really don't even care about the lyrics, especially rock bands like ACDC, who really cares what they're saying. You know, it's just a theme. It's just a mood that they're getting. And I can groove on that and just totally tune out the lyrics. Whereas I think for you, if I had written something kind of slapdash and it was really vague what I meant or I expressed it badly or something sounded cliche. I think that really was not the kind of band you wanted to be in. And this song in particular, I remember we sat down, I think you had even emailed me some thoughts. Maybe you could change this to this. Maybe you could. I thought it wasn't actually done. Maybe I'm misremembering. So you think you actually had whole lyrics before I got my hands on it? Yeah, I remember having a conversation about the chorus and how the chorus shifts perspectives to be lay me down so low, burn me out so low, like a question or uh, an exclamation. And I, I remember for some reason, my grammar or the tense of that at the time <laughs> you didn't like on the original and we fixed it. And it's a better song because of it. Well, let's hear it. Every time you feel 
So the thing that's really stuck with me, and one of the reasons I really like this is this kind of don't fear the reaper main part. Obviously, it's not the same riff, but it has a similar overall vibe, which made it very natural to like, oh, let's do these dual harmonies on a lot of it. Do you remember how that kind of generally sort of depressing uh, feel went with these? I guess I can hear pretty clearly. This was a complaint right about jobs and situations like that just being a drag. Is that right? Or rather, those are symptoms of something a little bit deeper. It was about getting caught in the same situation again and again, especially emotionally, about trying to think, well, I'm not going to get upset about these things in life because they seem like they just occur again and again and again. And I'm, I'm a fool for getting angry and then regretting having been angry with people or getting depressed and then thinking, well, that just made things worse to have that state of mind. I should be able to deal with these things that everybody has to deal with and not get caught up in it so much emotionally. But it always seems like a trick where you don't realize it's happening until you're in it. And so that's the theme of the song is trying to say, why do I keep getting stuck in this emotional cycle? 
And I think the chorus, I think my main contribution to this was just making the chorus into a second person prayer, sort of lay me down so low, burn me out. Whereas I think you had like, I've been down so low or something. Yeah. And in fact, you did use the word prayer. Now I remember that conversation and it was a good idea. I think it makes the chorus a lot better. And then I think also in the third verse, way what's on my mind for the thousandth time, hundred thousandth time again and again, like the actual hundred thousandths in the repeating I think that was my thought, but I don't remember what it was originally. Or I don't remember either. Uh, I do like that. Whoever came up with it, it was, a, <laughs> it was good emotional emphasis to emphasize, wow, why does this happen again and again and again? I seem to recall we had discussions too. There's a section of the song. Oh, I think it's the very first verse where I talk about I can feel the sunlight over the phone tonight. Yeah, I like that a lot, that mix of uh, modalities. That was really about living in Wisconsin here where it gets really cold and snowy and you feel like you're living on the surface of the moon. And then I would talk to my family on the phone from California and I could hear birds chirping and I could hear that they were outside on the deck talking to me. And it seemed like such a Contrast to me being here, trapped in my house, looking out at the gray snow uh, and the cold and being stressed out. I could really feel sunlight coming through the line. And now that I'm looking at this, if I was not involved in writing this, I might ask how that shift from, okay, first it's sort of addressed at your family and then it's sort of musing to yourself and then it becomes this prayer or what, you know, even if it was, I've been down slow, it's sort of just a general expression to no one in particular. I guess that first verse is almost like a quote. Like the whole thing is a stream of consciousness, but the first verse is kind of incorporating the reflections of the day. It's not like the whole thing is aimed at your family or something. No, you're right. And we talked a lot about what we wanted to do, or at least we talked around what we wanted to do a lot, which was a lot of fun. And one of my favorite sort of lyrical devices, and in fact, now I remember I had just read some poetry by Raymond Carver. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that that was a huge influence. That got me to read some of the short stories. There was a poem about a person sitting on an airplane and they're leaving their old city and basically their business failed and their marriage failed. And it was a mix of these little mundane details of sitting on the plane and musing about his whole life situation. There's a lot of lyricists in rock and pop that do that, where the song is kind of centered around a moment or you get a little glimpse of a story. But then there's also the bigger musings, and those are probably the chorus of the song. Like Free Falling, the Tom Petty is, I love that. I'm a, I'm a real sucker for that. So I was definitely trying to do that. So it's interesting that it seemed like we had a good time with this, with the lyrics, even though the way you described it sounds like, yeah, Mark was really anal retentive and, uh, <laughs> and just had these. But that was something I'd wanted to try. I'd done a little bit of co-writing with my friend Steve, who was the other time I co-fronted a band that we, for the most part, did not write together at all for years and years and years. And it was only after I moved away from Ann Arbor and would come back to visit that like, okay, we can enter this egoless state. We're really good friends. This is, you know, there's no stress of anything going on, fights for what's going to be on the album. So now we'll actually try to write together and like develop some chemistry there. Whereas this was, I mean, I think this band kind of started with us hanging out and talking. Like we didn't have a drummer. We didn't really have a band. We just session after session of us just playing music at each other. And I don't even know how productive we were on some of those things. We'd known each other for some years before this, but not like for more than a 10 minute conversation before we were getting together for these things. And I think I'd come to some of your shows, seeing you playing bass. We actually, we didn't even mention that this is not only your 
kind of a first time singer in this band, but that you weren't even playing guitar in most of your bands, right? That you were just the pillar of bass rhythm solidity. Yeah, I've kind of switched back and forth on that a couple times. And you're right, at that point, I was the bass player in a band. And I eventually, we got another bass player and I became the second guitar player of that band. I'm certainly not the bass player that you are. So getting me off the bass was a good move. But it's interesting that we never really ran into a situation like this again. There were some times you would have comments on my lyrics. So like, that was the problem that I played some of. I remember the second verse, just find someone who's fairly good looking, but not too good looking. You'll get used to it. And you're, that's the kind of line that very Elvis Costello-ish where you're just like, you can't say that. That's too honest. That's too like, yes, that's sort of accurate, but then you wouldn't actually suggest something else. And so I would just, that's the way it would stay. Like, I don't think, think it made me rethink. Maybe I'm just too impervious to criticism. I don't think you should have changed it. I think that comes down to there's so many different kinds of music and so many different ways to go for lyrics. And I think I, more than you, had a specific feel in mind, at least when we started the band. But you are a much more open-minded lyricist. You seem to write about whatever piece of life is, is interesting you, which is that is definitely one of your many talents. And some of those songs, they're all great. Your lyrics are great, so well thought out and well expressed. And I think I occasionally made the comment like, yeah, but do we really want to write about that on the rock album? Just as a stylistic thing. Do you know what I mean? I love Rush. I love Steely Dan. But to me, thinking, what am I going to do in my rock band? No one's going to want to learn all those chords. No one's going to want to learn time signature changes. So even though I love that stuff, that's not what I'm going to do. And part of that for me was the style and subject matters of certain lyrics. But in retrospect, I think I was wrong. <laughs> I, I've had more experience with bands now, and now I know you might have an idea of exactly what the band should sound like, but it isn't going to be like that. There's going to be a meeting point between all the members, and that's where the band lives. I don't think you push back at all on like the song Luge, which has lyrics like, a bell and chain, a tube of fish. A portion of a fleeting <laughs> wish. I only leave. I'm plentitude. I won't depress the general mood. Like that's about as geeky as I, that's not even geeky. That's like weird hippie shit. That's definitely an extreme for me. Yeah. I think you just enjoyed playing it enough that you're just like, okay, we're just entering hippie mode. It's fine. I loved it right from the start. I think some of your lyrics are great because they point out some of the ugly or I'm not sure what the right word is, but just find someone who's pretty good looking, but not too good looking. You know, there's a game that we play around all of that kind of stuff and you called it out and it certainly isn't dreamy to hear that. Well, and of course, the irony of it is that the heart wants what the heart wants. You don't actually make decisions based on objective criteria like that at all. So like the whole thing of listing criteria is just a bullshit game that, you know, it's <laughs> engaging in in this little advice giving song that I think the whole advice giving song, I mean, it's one of the default types of you're talking in second person. And so you're like, you're trying to be inspirational. You got to believe in yourself, but it's come on. Like <laughs> that is, it's seldom an effective. I don't know. I don't even like, I got ruled out pretty early on in my marriage. Like you can't write <laughs> love songs like as a way of trying to solve marital issues or something like, like, I don't want to hear that shit. Like, <laughs> so that was purely a, you know, even if you're writing in second person, you're still kind of writing to yourself, except in rare circumstances or an early part of a relationship. Maybe that's great advice to all you young songwriters out there from Mark. <laughs> your wife doesn't want to listen to your songs and then respond to them. 
you have to say those things with your mouth to her face. (laughs) It's just words. Just do stuff. Just take out the damn garbage. I think the other thing I want to talk about on the song are the harmonies. I really hadn't worked in any bands that had enough people with the talent to write and pull off these harmonies. And so you instantly brought that sensibility to the band. Let's get these harmonies. We've got more than one singer. Our lineup changed. And no matter who was in our lineup, you were trying to get people to sing. Oh, you have a low voice? Okay, here's the harmony part for you. And that was just great. And it was a big learning experience for me. I would bring my songs or the songs that I'd sketched out to the band after the first album. I had sketched out this song. Hey, Mark, you know, write your harmony part now. Hey, Mark, could you write a harmony for the third band member? I actually really learned how to imagine harmonies from working with you in that band. Yeah, well, by the last album, I feel like you were doing that mostly. You would be telling me what to sing, more or less, because you'd have it on the demo already. Yeah, not that we stuck to it, but I at least had a vision. And in fact, you know, it was just last summer. I went for a run. It was really hot. So I was probably a little addled by mile three. And I had been working on a song idea before I went for my run. And the whole song popped into my head exactly how it should sound. I think it's the only time it's happened to me. And I heard a four-part harmony, which usually doesn't happen to me. Usually I hear like one part. And then once I've laid that down, then I go, oh, I hear these high notes. I got to get that in there. And often I have my guitar in my hand and I'm going, well, what's a third up from there? Is that the note I'm hearing? That was the first time that I ever just heard the whole song, could hear all four voices in my head. So I'm definitely still learning. Well, it was a nice challenge in this early band to only have two part that Julian, our drummer, did not sing, was not going to put a mic in front of him. He just refused. So in this song that some of the time, I had a couple different, like I couldn't decide which part to sing. So I was like, we'll do both. We'll kind of go in between them. And then when it came down to the recording, like, oh, well, then we'll add, I'll sing the third one as well, you know, as an overdub toward the end of the song. So we could just have some growth through it. So that was a nice challenge. And it's always weird singing harmony as someone who does a lower voice than the lead. I really like that because, in fact, one of the first guys I in high school, who was like a choir musical theater guy, and I, I was trying to write a song with him and talking about harmonies. And he was like, well, if you put harmonies on top of the lead, it's kind of distracting, right? The, the highest thing is the one that's going to pull through, which, yeah, I guess Jake, our mixing guy, kind of believed that as well, because he would, by default, make all the harmonies really, really quiet. <laughs> So like you got the lead and then you might have things on top of it, but they're so like obviously background vocals. Whereas I just by nature like the more Beatlesque. like you don't know who exactly is singing lead. It's just this is a dual vocal thing. And so, you know, was pushing for that on songs like this to keep me from getting swallowed up. In fact, he would pull for the background vocals. Like if it was background vocals on every chorus, he would pull from the second chorus and put it on top of the first chorus one so that it would be double tracked. So that it would be a chorusy thing in a way that a chorusy thing on the chorus, a chorus overlaid doubled sound, whereas the lead would be, you know, central and singular for the most part. Yeah. I remember you sitting there telling him to turn him up quite a bit. Can we bring that harmony up? Can we bring that harmony up? So you definitely had a slightly different aesthetic in mind. And I think I really agree with you there. I really love the bands where you know who's singing what harmony. 
you know, where it's not just a wall of sound. You can hear the personality and you can do that with the Beatles. You can do that with bands with Fleetwood Mac. Every time you can pick out exactly who's singing what harmony. And it wasn't just one singer quadruple overlaying. Or the Roy Thomas Baker way that I didn't I didn't know about. That even the Beach Boys, I think, did this. That like, we're all going to sing, or at least everybody that has this range is going to sing the low part together. We're all going to sing the middle part. We're all going to... You can't even fix stuff like that. <laughs> If you're, if you're singing in unison, like it just has to be actually right and it completely obscure. It is a wonderful sound. I mean, Cars is like my favorite band and those production techniques. I definitely want to use that sometime, but as a band thing, especially when it's a three piece, come on, you can keep track, like in the band with five people, maybe you don't know. It's a little hard to keep track of who everybody is and what parts they're singing, but yeah, no, it's good to establish a personality. And yeah, you were so overwhelming in terms of the guitar style and determining what the mood of the song was going to be that the harmonies and trying to add a little extra rhythmic goofiness on the bass or little high notes was like the little part, which I always felt like is something you didn't actually want so much. <laughs> like, can you just double the, the chord? It's fine. But that was an issue. This is our only song with Julian playing on it. So he also, you know, he was a jazz trained drummer who just always wanted to put in, and I really actually like it. Like it adds to me, I don't know what you thought when you were listening back on this time that when he's playing through some fairly straightforward stuff, we're just dun, 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 dun. You know, I've actually tamed my bass during those parts, but he's still like putting in little jazzy things. That was kind of a struggle to like control his, that he would get bored a little too easily. But looking at what we actually got down after it went through the studio process of getting all tightened up, you know, we were all kind of sloppy, but Jake just did miracles in making these sound tight. What is your current thought? <laughs> I would agree with you. I think it comes down to, in my mind, I had a certain style that was way more straightforward and that extends to the harmonies too. Like, I remember when we talked about doing this podcast together, you said, remember we were talking about harmonies and I really thought, well, come on, U2, REM, they have these real simple harmonies, but maybe the harmony part is just two or three notes. It doesn't even necessarily follow the lead. It's just another part. Let's do that. That's easy and it sounds awesome. And your inclination was to go full on Beatles which ended up being like a key part of our sound. And I felt that way about the bass and the drums too, is sometimes four on the floor and just playing quarter notes really drives a song. But I think that your style is more complex and interesting than that. And obviously Julian's was too. So yeah, now when I listen back, I think I also wanted to avoid, I think a lot of times local bands overplay. We forget that it's the vocals that... 90% of your listeners are going to cue into and then the rest is supporting that. If they make them live such that they can, that's such a big ask. Can you please make the vocals audible? Well, speaking of that, so let's get Manager, our second one out. So this is one that I brought. I guess this is one of the issues is whether I should be, not that they're royalties to, to share, but I feel like, you know, and I will link folks to the demo. I mean, it was actually on one of my solo albums where I played this acoustically. It's just basically two chords through the whole song. And then I had some little tight harmonies and the whole song was quite short. What this version from Impossible Things 2011 is over four minutes and so much of the atmosphere <laughs> is contributed by your just big guitar stuff. And, you know, the song is basically done after three minutes and yet we let it fester. And this kind of was adding to the, uh, we had the, the whole second side of this album, but in particular this and then the song Irresistible that's right after it were just dark, 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 as dark as we ever got. 
Yeah. I liked this song right off the bat. And I had just gotten an amp that you could get feedback with at a really low level. Like you didn't have have to have it cranked to 10. And I don't know if I overused it on any individual song, but maybe we didn't need so many songs with that. And so you can hear it on the intro. I was very excited to do those guitar parts and get that feedback ringing out and add to the darkness of the song. So I definitely pushed it over the edge in terms of gloominess. <laughs> with my guitar parts, but it's a great song. And uh, you wrote, this was, yeah, you had the whole thing pretty much written, right? As a two minute song. Yeah. All right. Well, here it is.
lot of the stuff on this album, I'm pretty sure we mapped out with Julian. And then Nate Penny, our drummer for the last two albums, came in. And I don't remember if we played him Julian's performances or if we purposefully didn't. But I feel like I probably had in mind the, I want a big tribal thing, but I never, I know actually how to write that thing on kit, how to make it so you're not still. And it seems most drummers don't know how to do that either. Whether this was Julian's idea or whether he came up with it, I think was a masterful like wall of toms that worked well with your feedback mess. Yeah. You know, a lot of times I find that drummers want to add a tom part and it just totally destroys the drive of the song. And three out of four times, I find myself saying, or is there a different way we could, (laughs) we could do that? Because while it's cool and atmospheric, it like now the the song has no drive. These drums, I think were just perfect. Drop the snare and play the toms. Well, it helped that Nate actually had Tom mics that I think for the first album that we did my, the technique that somebody had taught me that I, you know, I only owed two good mics. We'll use them as overheads. And then I bought a kick drum mic. And in fact, I think you don't even put it in the kick drum. I think you put it a little in front of the kick drum. So they're all three of those. I don't think there was even a snare mic. No. And were the overheads in the X, Y position as in don't X me why it works? Probably. I, <laughs> yes, I don't know. <laughs> It's always a struggle. Can you get them actually crossed over the person's head or the mic stands are probably not long enough. So they're probably really above them to the left and the right. And there's going to be some phase interference. I don't understand any of that science, frankly. I remember having a struggle because my basement had lowered ceiling. So we couldn't get them uh, up to spec in terms of the height. Yes, we probably actually looked online about like, you know, to confirm where to put the mics and things and weren't just completely going off of our folklore that we received. But it was good that, you know, Nate came in. He was, he was a songwriter. He was actually fairly new to drums that, so this is weird that, you know, I'd been going back and forth between guitar and bass, but like played bass in this band. You had played a lot more bass and became the lead guitarist. And then Nate, I think had only been playing for a couple of years. He was younger than we were, but still like had some experience as a front guy. He contributed a couple songs to this album. Yeah. His songs were great. I loved them. He was in grad school, so he didn't have a lot of time to write. I think if he hadn't moved, I could have seen our albums become a third, (laughs) mainly written by each of us. Yeah, we should say on this album, he contributed two songs. On the third album, his grad school is really kicking into high gear, so he contributed none. Like, I don't even think there was anything like put forward that we rejected. I think he just showed up to drum. But it was still like having a songwriter sense as a drummer and really like playing your drums melodically, that makes up a lot for not having as much technique, maybe. I agree. When you're listening to the vocals, then you don't play over the vocals, and you're not just counting to four back there. You're trying to make it musical. He definitely has that instinct. It made it really easy to bring songs to him. So vocally, this is an example of one that, like, I sing too low to be an effective frontman for a big rock band. And so I'm going to have you sing with me pretty much the whole thing, so that at least there's something that's sticking out vocally if it's me by myself, which sometimes I had to jab you. Like these just go through a lot. I didn't remember you scolding me to come up with a background vocal part. I felt like I just always immediately was putting them forward even when they were not wanted. Whereas you like to get solid on the guitars before you'd even try live to do a harmony. I assume we had played, yeah, we had played this and the other things on this album live plenty. I think for some of the third album stuff, maybe... Some of your vocals might have been, you know, the recording might have been the first time. Am I making that up? <laughs> yeah, I think I, what I meant was for a lot of my songs, the ones that I brought in, I'd be like, okay, Mark, what are we going to do here? 
for your songs, you always came with the harmonies fleshed out. I don't think I ever suggested a harmony that you hadn't already suggested on a part. I think if there was any reluctance on my part, it was just that it was really hard to play some of these parts and sing at the same time. Mm -hmm. As a three-piece band, yeah. Because you are a poet, there's very little repetition. So in my songs, if I come up with a good chorus, you're going to hear it three times (laughs) in the song. But in a lot of your songs, even the chorus is different every time. And so the thought of singing, singing on pitch, matching your, on a song like this, we're really singing together got to match your pauses, was a heavy lift for me with the level of musicianship I was at at the time. Yeah, so I see in here the, the chorus, it only happens twice. Scrape your manager up off the foyer floor. You track that scum in here, now sweep it out the door. And I think we actually had to discuss this because it was like, no, 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 we can't. So the second time it's, don't track that scum in here, you leave it at the door and stay poor. You know, that we're adding an extra, the second time it's a command. I don't know why I felt the need to do those things like this that would just screw everybody up. (laughs) We're trying to sing it live. If you're an artist and you have a vision of something, I guess you say, just suck it up and learn it this way. But when someone brings in a song and you go, ooh, I like this first verse, and then the chords are just slightly different in the second verse, and maybe there's a different length of something that you wouldn't expect, it does take more time to learn the song. And so if you felt any resistance, that's probably what it was about. Like, oh man, can't we just sing the same thing again? I got the first part memorized. Maybe it's the amp sound you're using, but a lot of the times, see, you like to do these single note lines. You know, they're not like, they're more Lindsey Buckingham kind of, I'm going to bend a single thing. So like at the beginning of the song, this... Maybe it's the sound you're using. Like, it's just, it's something that when, when I'm trying to do guitar myself, I can never repeat that because it's like that you've got this sea of distortion that a part just wafts out of. Whereas if you just turn on a distorted sound, it'll be more like the down so low. Like it's very articulated. Whereas this, it's a more sloshy mess. Is that just the sound you're picking or what's the secret of that? You know, I'm really influenced by the guitar in my hand and the amp and If I get a certain sound, that could suggest a whole song to me. Just the sound, the grittiness, the sustain. So I think the key was that with whatever guitar sound I I had gotten, I think it was a PV tube amp. Oh yeah, it was a Delta Blues with a big uh, speaker in it. And that guitar, that's what did it for me. And one thing I've had problems with is when my equipment breaks and then I have to use a different amp, and then I don't like how it sounds. Even though it's a great sound, it doesn't sound exactly like the one I had before. It's wonderful that I've never been the gear guy in any band that I've been. Like, I tried to, really early on when I was in college, I would like, you know, with my bass, I would have a lot of pedals, or I would try to use all the knobs on my amp. Like, I had a chorus on my amp, I had an EQ thing, and I would like, oh, well, this song needs this. I completely had gotten past that by the time I got in this band. Like, I'm going to have... A bass sound. And in fact, I used your amp for most of the existence of this band because I liked it a lot better than mine. So just the fact that you took that time and care into which guitar am I going to use for this song? Which amp am I going to use? Like it's just something I can't even remember that sort of information five minutes after we've had a conversation about it. It can be troublesome. You know, I mean, you think about a guy like The Edge who, if he wrote a song on a certain guitar, that's the guitar he's playing live. 
And so he has this poor sound guy that has to bring out his 18 different guitars. And really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's not just they're tuned differently. They're just the, the wood. <laughs> and unfortunately, I kind of get that because if you put a clean fender in front of me, I'm going to write something really percussive because it doesn't have that sustain, but it has all that brightness. If you give me a nice warm amp, it's just totally different. And so those sounds really came from the equipment I was using. That's what inspired me. So I don't know what this very simple chorus musically. It rocks so much. When I was listening to it back this morning, like, and it's completely just the blend of the sounds that we're using, you know, the, some of the little like chromatic bass stuff at the ends of the phrases I contributed. But for the most part, you know, this is entirely you and Nate making this into something that is just not on the demo at all. Yeah, sometimes it's time to just play a simple 4-4 four, four rhythm and let the chords hang, right? We ended up doing that a lot, as well as on other songs, doing choruses in cut time, which kind of has the same effect. We have the end of that song here. Is that what you're talking about, where we twist it up? Changing time can really open things up. And a lot of times, if you have a really complicated verse just strumming open chords on the chorus really makes it jump out. I'm sure that I made it less cool adding this fast part at the end that we've been doing a, a nice kind of respectable, uh, not heavy metal, but a heavy rock song, Zeppelin-ish or whatever. And then... That was just... That was in the original demo. I did that and all these little bass riffs. Those were things that I thought those should be guitar, but like for whatever reason, we couldn't communicate that properly, so they just stayed bass riffs. I wanted them in there, and after you had put your mind into it, those were not there. I don't know. That's a, a problem I just have with, you know, it's the same thing where I'm, I'm saying, like, I don't know really how to articulate the drum sound that he came up with. That if I was just sitting down at a drum kit, I might have trouble with that. It's the same thing with lead lines that, like, okay, I want a but then if you actually sit and play that on guitar, it sounds really weird. It sounds just very weenie-ish. <laughs> I think maybe I'm writing saxophone parts or something and not actually writing guitar lead guitar lines <laughs> when I do that. I think you're writing for two guitars, Mark, because if you had that, then there would have to be somebody else filling out all that empty space underneath. Well, you'd think that on Down So Low or something, if you're going to switch to... But that's what you do live, is that you'd establish the big Don't Fear the Reaper part, and then you'd switch to the little weenie guitar line, but like you're doing it on a fat enough sound, and whichever drummer we had and I are just like doing our best to like fill in so that we don't need a rhythm guitar. And I know we tried. We had a guy that came in for two rehearsals or something, I don't know, it was not a rewarding enough experience or we just didn't find the right person or it was just having three people made it very simple. It was kind of nice. Yeah, that's true. I, I think we just didn't find the right people. If you can get three people to show up after work for band rehearsal, you're doing pretty good. Let's get the third song out there. So we had basically one in your column that I got to mess around with, one in my column that you messed around with quite a bit. Local, from the third album, Might Get It Right, 2013, this was a song that actually came out of in our early days, jamming together, recording ourselves. I mean, definitely this main guitar part is all you. Do, 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 
do da. And we had this demo for the longest time that was really just us repeating that riff over and over again and kind of <laughs> ooing and eyeing. And I don't know that we had any of the choruses that part. I tried to find that recording. I couldn't running up to today. It's, I'm sure it's on my computer somewhere. So it wasn't till we were doing stuff for the third album that I revived this out of like, I'd always wanted us to do like, okay, it's the first thing, the only thing we've actually completely co-written. <laughs> So then I ended up putting lyrics on it. But yeah, what what do you remember about this? Had this completely left your mind by the time I revived it? I think the beginning of the song was you had said, let's write something together. You had that in mind. So I came up with a riff, which is that introductory riff. And then we both worked on it a bit separately in terms of what would be the verse and the chorus. And I had a completely different chorus than the one you had written. And we kind of got stuck where I was like, no, I think we should do this chorus. And you liked your chorus. And we were having trouble moving past that. Then I just kind of let it go. But you finished the song and then brought it back. Does that sound right? Years later, you know, I'd kind of forgotten about that at the time. But yeah, I think that maybe I had written a chorus of some sort around when we started it that is not on here at all, that there's no trace of, or maybe, you know, the first chord of it is on here. But I do remember, so when I sort of revived this and wrote the lyrics, I had some particular things in my, like I'd finished it as a song, but there were things, because you already had your fingers in it from the beginning, that you felt more comfortable pushing back on. Like, I don't know that what you're doing here with this chord and this chord makes sense. And so there was a little bit of back and forth. Damn, we got to play the song. Around you, local. 
Getting into the details in the choruses, uh, da, 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 I don't want to suck up to you. That sounds like the kind of riff that you would write, but I don't remember if you actually did or whether that was my idea. <laughs> actually, I think that was your idea. So that's funny. We disagreed on the chorus, I dropped it, and then we used neither of our chorus. You wrote a third chorus. <laughs> so. Maybe. I don't totally remember. I don't remember, geez, what your original idea was. And I didn't even remember that that was a stage. I thought we just did this recording on our own and then just forgot about it. So yeah, there's a whole extra step of, the, of disagreement in this that I had blocked out. <laughs> I think I, what I wrote was more Nirvana-esque. The whole song is obviously <laughs> very Nirvana-esque. <laughs> but your chorus is much more, mel- well, I don't know if melodic is the right word, but the chorus almost has an upbeat sound to it, even though the lyrics are not necessarily upbeat. And I think I really wanted to keep it dark. I guess darkness was <laughs> what I was into at the time. And you wanted a relief. You wanted the chorus to have a brighter, not happier, but more upbeat sound. Well, and the harmonies help a lot to justify it being as long as it is and as repetitive as it is. I think it might have been your idea in the verses to go to you know a four. So we're just doing this main riff. And then we go to the... You know, for the second or third verse, it goes to a different chord. Like it's doing the same basic riff. I'm pretty sure that was one of your contributions. I don't remember at this point. Well, I don't remember either. I do like those harmonies quite a bit. If I had to say something that remained consistent about our style through those albums, it's definitely those great harmonies. I totally stole from Weezer the idea of, from Weezer's first album, of having one of the harmonies just be a parallel octave. In other words, so I can sing as low as I want, and somebody else will be doing just a little falsetto thing on top of it, and it'll 
just make it shine out as an extra thing. And I'm pretty sure on this song, I actually ended up doing that myself for those couple parts. Like obviously you sing a lot in it and I'm pretty sure Nate has harmonies in it too. There's some parts that definitely sound like him. But as far as that, I just want to pair a lot. Like I remember having discussion with you and referencing Weezer and playing something from what I had in mind of, can we just have a high vocal that all it does is add just a, like we could almost use a, an octave or pedal. Whereas in manager, we're singing together some of it in parallel octaves, but like you sound like you, you know, it's a full on, you're doing your, uh, I want to say Robert Plant thing, but that's just because you had a high voice. Survivor. Let's, let's, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could sound like an African howler monkey in heat like Robert Plant does, but uh, I can't do it. <laughs> For whatever reason, these just in a couple of these verses, it was just like, oh, fuck, I'll just do it. You know, Cause it was obviously we were doing it live. Actually, this is one I don't know if we did it live together until after we did the recording. We certainly rehearsed it, but like as far as, performances with all the vocals on it. It was probably something that we had some form of it, but then it, until we had the recording down, it didn't become what it was live. I don't know. Anything else jump out about this arrangement to you? It's an interesting uh, choice of lyrics to sing about sort of this trope of being a local band and what local bands do. That's a striking part of the song. Some of which is out of envy. It's, I mean, it's, it, you could take it as self deprecation that, yeah, we're probably not going to be doing a national tour soon, but like there are some of these bands that I just feel like they're, they're playing every festival. And I just always envy that because like I don't know the people <laughs> to get us in every single local event. Yeah. That was a problem for both of us really is uh, neither of us. We're uh, going to the bars and talking to the owners and getting to know every owner. I seem to recall that when we made relationships, we sure played at those places a lot because Glass Nickel Pizza, we played about a billion shows at. And luckily, we kind of got an in on the high noon. And so there was a while there where maybe every couple months we were playing an early show. Was it on Fridays? I don't even know if it was just on Fridays, but I think that like they just introduced that we're going to have full band shows, multi-band shows at 5 p.m., 6 p.m. It worked out really yeah, well for us. For us old and, people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our fans could get off work and go have a beer and watch us and not have to pay too much in babysitting. <laughs> Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was even the CD release party that we didn't, you know, I know at least one of them we were doing where we went on at midnight, but those gigs always were lame. Like people don't want to stick around that long. And, you know, a lot of this, I remember just feeling a lot of stress and duress about different things. For example, if we were recording an album, I mean, real bands can spend months and months and months all day and all night doing this, but we were trying to do it at night and on the weekends. And then it would be like, well... Okay, now we haven't played a show in four months. Let's try and get a show. And then we would get a show and we'd be kind of out of practice as a live band. And that's very difficult to do. Let's enter kind of the last phase here. Normally, I just put one song at the end. I'm going to put two just because of why the hell not. So I wanted to put a full-on just Matt song. So At The Time is one of the favorites, and it's a pretty short song from the same album. And this, I feel like my memory, as opposed to when I actually went back and re-listened to it, was that as the band went on, you got just more confident about your arrangements and coming in with the demo that had harmonies on it. And so this song, I just feel like at the time was just 90% you. When I actually listen back, like I'm still being pretty goddamn pushy about my bass part, like that that's probably not what you envisioned. And I know the Christmassy, but b 2 b 2 b 2 b 2 b 2 like that that was, you know, something we came up in the room together. Yeah, so I feel still pretty well represented 
the with you part at the end. There's a outro that I think you, I had an outro in mind, but you definitely developed that and, and gave it that nice harmony. I think that harmony was your idea to sing with you with all these harmonies on it. That was a nice part. I think Nate was doing the high ones on this, right? He's just a more comfortable high singer than me. So that even if I was maybe writing the part, you know, I didn't have to necessarily sing that live. That was a great relief that I could, I don't even try anymore to sing the high harmonies to a high singer. That was a weird thing to even try for me for for years. That seems like you had developed full on your original style and had gotten over the impossible things, you know, our second album, Dark Period. So it was still kind of on the on the mode of down so low. Thanks for stopping by the stuff that we started with, but was just much more confident in just about every aspect. Yeah, the lyrics are nostalgic, but it's upbeat in terms of the music. And that's something that I really still do quite a bit and have recognized that I like bands like the Jayhawks that do that, where they're not slow songs, they're mid to fast tempo songs. They have some drive, but the lyrics are either nostalgic or sad. Not so much that there's a mismatch, but I definitely did that on this song. It's a nostalgic song about remembering a moment with a girlfriend. I kind of recount, I was in high school at the time and taking the bus to uh, go see her and just thinking about what a good thing that was. She was a little withdrawn something, but there's the, the interpersonal dynamics of that. It was a great thing. Like I've felt great at the time. And I look back and think relationships, unfortunately, don't last forever, but that was, or at least some don't. I enjoyed that. That was a wonderful part of my life. I look at other parts of my life at the time and they were not that great. And that was a thing that I enjoyed. There was a lot of love there. Do you find that you want to milk? I don't know. I just have a much less dramatic, you know, emotionally dramatic life than I did when I was 19. <laughs> and so, you know, it's not that I even write songs that often, but when I, when I do, some of the ones in the last decade are still drawn on those old wells to some extent, even if it's partly imaginative reconstruction, just to have something to, <laughs> that devastated me. I do do that from time to time. Yeah. Just because, you know, your life can get very repetitive. You're not seeking adventure. You're not trying to find your place in the world like you were. You're holding down the ship. You can only write so many songs about holding down the ship uh, or holding down the fort, I should say. These days, I get inspired by other people's stories. And I write a lot of songs that I hear a podcast. I love podcasts like Snap Judgment, any of the storytelling podcasts where it could be a celebrity or it could just be a drug dealer describing what their unusual drug dealing was life or just a normal person with a one of life's normal things. And probably a third of the songs I write these days, I draw from those. I just imagine those situations and, and describe them. One of the second album ones, Find You Out, that was actually written after watching a bunch of Dexter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, you know, I, I never knew that. Did you tell me that? I don't know. I might have been a little embarrassed by it. It certainly, you know, <laughs> has enough like personal grit on it. It's not purely a piece of fan fiction, but like there was some of that in there to give an exaggerated import to being found out. It's not merely being a phony in your regular life. So, so okay, that's that's how I interpreted it. That it was about this idea that you're faking it to make it, and someone's going to call you on it. Sure, that's definitely part of it. So here's uh, at the time. Then we're going to talk a little more before the very end. Oh, 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 
we've alluded a little bit, Nate moved out of country. So while we were adding, I think you just had your first kid somewhere recently. And Nate was such just a nice guy. It definitely made it. I think the initial chemistry of us having these long conversations about music and stuff in 2006, by 2012, I don't know that we were getting along quite as well. Let's put it that way. (laughs) There are just so many times where I can stumble over one of your, you know, we were using your basement and I just recall stuff like stumbling over a patch cord that pulls some of your equipment down. (laughs) It's just kind of, you know, as if we were roommates, you know, but it's slowed down. It's not, you know, I'm sure we would have killed each other if we were actual roommates. Cause I think we just have, I think your brother called you at your, your wedding, the most uptight hippie that he's (laughs) ever met. So on the one hand, it's like, anyway, but there were, there were definite. And then, uh, yeah, when it, this, this was the breaking point where we, we had a couple songs that were left over from the last album. I'm pretty sure we even recorded drums for them that got lost. I think I was even responsible for that, but we had a few gone down, which is a song you never really liked for the band anyway, but I kind of pushed it. You had one of yours name. I'm forgetting the one with the harmonica. I'm trying to recall. I actually don't even recall now. Well, you know, musically, that was kind of a frustrating period for me. Until that point, I had always been playing two bands at a time. I'd had a kid. I was very busy at work. I had a house. I had to mow the lawn, whatever. And until that point, I'd always been able to play in two bands. I seemed to have this pattern of being in a hard rock band and then plus being in a, a band more like we had. And it became untenable. So I think a lot of what you're describing, I was stressed out. Both you and I are very ambitious about this kind of thing, and we can't help our perfectionist tendencies. If you have an idea, you're not letting it go. If I had an idea, I wasn't letting it go. And uh, it was a little bit of a pressure cooker. And then I also, right there at the end, a solution that I thought was, Mark, let's get more members. And then I don't have to do 15 tracks on every recording, and I don't have to come up with an intro. And not that I don't love doing those things. I absolutely do, which is part of the problem because I can't stop myself. But let's get these other members. And to me, that was a move to get some weight off my shoulders. And it didn't work. It worked that we got some great new band members. But on all of those last recordings, for example, I remember having a recording where we had tried to get a keyboard player to write a nice intro and play. This is one of the third album ones before we got Chris? Actually, I think it might be We Who Have Escaped. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that is the song we're going to play. That is the only completed recording. And it didn't work. And you emailed me sort of in the middle of the week. Okay, there's nothing going on here, Matt. Can you do something? And I remember just cursing and going, oh, man, I have this busy week. I wasn't going to, but I couldn't help myself. I, of course, that night at nine, after everyone was asleep, went down to my basement and started composing those parts, teaching myself how to play them and then recording them. And they're great. I I like what I put on that song and I like your song quite a bit. And that was kind of the problem. I I just couldn't help myself. (laughs) And so that the solution of getting those other folks just wasn't working. It added complication, but it didn't seem to take any weight off of our shoulders. Yeah. Listening to this recording, like everybody. So we, we got Chris Wellner, who is really a front man. I've seen his current band. He's a great singer. He does much more jazzy stuff. So he introduced some of his originals to us and they, one of them we ended up putting in the live set, but, and I'm sure we would have done more, but it was not a natural fit in terms of style, but a wonderful, like the best harmony singer 
we've had in could follow really complicated stuff and a high voice. So he sings a very high voice. He also did that. He's a keyboardist, but we already had Eric. So we pushed him to be the rhythm guitarist. So he just played. And then after we had him on electric a little bit, it was like, ah, no, that sound is too giant and is overwhelming what you're doing. Let's just make him stand in a corner and play an acoustic. And nonetheless, like the intro to this song with these harmonics is brilliant that he came up with. Yeah, that's right. Which, although he forgot, like when we actually got into record, he didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, that thing that you did when we did it live, like do that. That. And so I think I had to reteach it to him. So that's funny. But, you know, he, it was definitely something that he came up with in the first place and made us just a much more solid harmony unit. And then Eric Schumann, this keyboardist who I'd done a little work with in the past, had been in touch with for some years had tried to get to come play with us for years. Like first album, second album, I kept asking him and finally something clicked that he decided, okay, I'll come along. And I love his playing on this. He has these little harpsichord things we did in the mix. There's some kind of breaks where we either put in a little riff of yours or a little riff of his or me going hoo hoo. Oh yeah. It was like we're dueling. I play one and then he plays one. Yes, it was now it was decided during, you know, in post in the mix, oh, exactly what was going to be in there. But yeah, you're right. He is more of kind of like a Elton John kind of full piano part guy, which adds some texture to the rhythm section. But that's not what we needed. We needed Greg Hawk's keyboardist to add distinct counter melodies so that you would not have to do as many of them. And at least in this song, you put down your whole rhythm guitar part and we need that lead magic. Like we need, besides the solo, which I, I think is one of your best solos ever in the song, but we needed those lead licks to just connect everything together and make it sound like new people, make it sound rock. Yeah, and it's a great song. I love the drive of this song. I love the chorus. And it was really fun to write that solo and play it. I listened to it before we started talking. I thought, oh yeah, I used to know how to play, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I could... I wrote stuff like that. Uh, these days I'm much lazier. I've sort of moved to being more of a songwriter and less of a guitarist. And I don't really make parts that are that intricate or interesting for the leads and then spend hours making myself memorize it. Because that was another thing is I always played all of those parts, the leads and the intros. I tried to play them just like they were on the recording when we played live. So I didn't just improvise. Right. Well, and that seemed like, you know, it's a melody. It's not just a jam for 90% of the songs. Yeah, yeah. If the band had lasted longer, we probably would have gotten to a space where people were playing more prominent parts and I could have stepped back. But at the time, it wasn't happening yet. They were great musicians and they're both great guys to work with. Well, and we should mention Mike Lamerick, the drummer here, who is now in your current thing, That who actually would have been, because he was a really nice harmony vocalist, that if we had just not tried to add, you know, turn into a five piece, which frankly, I know I use this terminology as we are proceeding. We didn't deserve business wise. Like when you're making enough money <laughs> that you can then afford more people, then you should add more people. But really we had no business. We should have just used it for the recordings. I don't know. That's at least my, but we only had one gig with this new thing and everybody, you know, they added some good energy to it. Mike fit in wonderfully and could have just stepped right into Nate's shoes and just proceeded from there. It did become a, okay, we've added a new person, a new drummer. Are we going to really relearn stuff from all three albums? Like, <laughs> How much do we have to relearn? I felt like after we've been playing some of these songs for years and years, it builds up such a professionalism and chemistry about those songs. It was hard for me to let any of them go. 
I would want to like, okay, we have another gig coming up. Let's rotate in five new songs that the new drummer had not played at the time. Which after a band has been going for a while, there is something Sisyphusian. <laughs> if I can <laughs> No, I hear you above teaching. Didn't I already teach a couple of people this song? <laughs> And now we're having, as you said, like to relearn, like you're still fucking up when we get to the solo on love is the problem because we hadn't played for three months or whatever the thing is. Yeah, that was very frustrating. Having to relearn over and over again that I can see that a a palate cleansing of some sort uh, (laughs) might be nice. But you still play some of these, right? Like at the time, right? With the new trio, Bluestone. Here and there. Not that I don't think they're great songs. It's just fun to write new stuff. All right, so here is Escape that did not make it. It was on the uh, the only album for the, the fourth New People album that did not exist. So it went on the Mark Lynn songs from the Partially Examined Life album, which is just a collection of stuff that was lying around. We who have escaped, we will come back for you. Don't you lose the thought of looking out. Have escaped on keeping track of you. All your desperate thoughts are leaking out. Bet you they're soft, bet you they're dull, bet you they've got a common center. I bet you they're bots, I bet you they're not really of you. I bet you you're stuck, I bet you you're fucked, I bet you you've got a lot more coming to you and Bet you feel dumb, though not always We who have escaped, we will come back for you You are not forgotten in these parts You, the sad remains of Western barbecue Bought and sold and chewed up in your hearts I bet you they're good, I bet you they're kind I bet you you've got a soul worth singing I bet you you've got a hundred novels Boiling up in yourself I bet you you're smart, more than you think I bet you could stretch and reach the stars Or just the sink If your cube had one and not just the smell Of the gated
Well, thanks for doing this. This was a, a nice recap, reliving. Good that you have fond memories about stuff. I sure do. Yeah, I learned so much. It was a big learning experience for me. Um, and I, I learned a lot from you, Mark. My lyrics certainly got better. I learned uh, harmonies. It did open my mind a lot about what I could accomplish with a sort of hobby band. Yeah, it is funny that, you know, I think these recordings stack up with largely because of Jake Johnson, our great engineer who like fixes the rhythms on everything. But we did get better as we went. Like the drumming, the guitar playing, everything just got much more smooth. Definitely you got much more confident about your voice as we went. That was sort of an ongoing thing of the in-ear monitors and it maybe not retaining the tonality when we were live. And how do we solve that technical problem? There just always seemed to be technical problems in terms of like, how's your hand these days? Like, I, I feel like for years you had tendonitis that was making it so you had overpracticed or something. <laughs> there was some issues. Yeah. At one point I, uh, was getting the, you have carpal tunnel, consider this surgery talk yep. from doctors. But luckily I've, I found solutions. Right. Not tendonitis. It was tinnitus and carpal tunnel. <laughs> yeah. You can, you can, you can never have enough band related injuries. <laughs> Not just your pride, but also your ears and your and your wrist. Thanks a lot for uh, having me on. I uh, it really is a great podcast. I think I listen to an episode a week. Well done. Thanks, and thanks to the audience for putting up with this self indulgence. Matt's gone now. I'm recording this close to the release time. My thought was to release this both on the Nakedly Examined Music feed and also for pretty much pop, my uh, general pop culture podcast, as this was something that I think was supposed to be more generally about the process of collaboration. But as I've been doing my editing pass on this, yeah, as soon as we got into mic configurations, I, I don't think a general audience is perhaps going to be so enthused about this one. You can hear all three New People albums, as well as the Mark Lint songs from the Partially Examined Life album at marklint.bandcamp.com or on Spotify, Apple Music, or Amazon Music. You can find Matt's current band on Facebook, at Bluestone Madison. You need only wait a week for the next Nakedly Examined Music, which will be with, as previously announced, Mark Farner from Grand Funk Railroad. Make sure you are subscribed to the Nakedly Examined Music podcast through nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, or find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. Until next time, keep on musicin'. This is Mark Lentemeyer signing off. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.